Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline's not able to join us today, but check in. We have um, a really interesting guest with us today. And of course, we always say our guests are interesting because we wouldn't invite them to be on if we didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But Nancy Regan, author of From Showing Off to Showing Up, An Imposter's Journey from Perfect to Present. Nancy built her reputation as the highly rated host of CTV, which I think stands for Canadian TV, Atlantic's Live at Five for 15 years. She also served as the national host of CTV's Good Morning Canada and that news show on TV Tropolis and has interviewed some of the most famous people on the planet, including Oprah, Madonna, Russell Crowe, and Harrison Ford. Nancy is also an actor, having appeared in TV and film productions such as Haven, Trailer Park Boys, and Reversible Errors. From showing off to showing up hit the Globe and Mail bestseller list upon publication. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Nancy. Thanks, Monica, so much. I'm sorry I'm missing Caroline, but I'm Uh, glad to co-host with you today. (laughs) (laughs) And Yeah, she's sad to be missing it, too. When I told her the title of this book today, she said, oh, that sounds like a good one. But I only give her about every other book because at 88, she almost 88 she's just not up to doing a show every week so wow I've been listening to you I did not know that she was 88 that is incredible I know isn't it she's been doing radio since the 70s now Nancy I understand you also do a couple of podcasts you want to tell us a little about those Oh, sure. I Right now, my focus is a podcast called The Canadian Love Map. And it is something I'm really having fun with because when they approached me to host it, I thought, well, it might be all schmaltzy romance stories. But I'll tell you, I just enjoy it so much because it's love stories of all kinds, whether it's romance or family oriented you know we've had grandparent and grandchild special connections we have people talk about their passion projects and how they're you know really contributing to the world around them and it's it's just so much fun and and i i what i really love is that people very often say oh my goodness you know in a dark world this is such a little ray of sunshine. And that's, for me, I think that's partly why I enjoy it. It's a great reminder that, you know what, there are just really good people surrounding us. And, and too often, I know this, I used to be in news, but too often the news is just all bleak. And and we we need to really take a break from that. It's why podcasts like yours as well are contributing in a really meaningful way to to the conversation, but you're shining a spotlight on on writers, which is it's just such a gift. I'm I'm really thankful to be here today. My other podcast is called The Soul Booth, and I started it really just out of thin air uh, in 2016, I think, and it ran until the beginning of the pandemic but when we went into lockdown i had to let it go because i was writing this book in earnest and i was also uh, in a situation where my main sponsors were a gym a restaurant oh, businesses that were completely okay. <laughs> you know shut down so it was it was perfect timing because it allowed me to really hibernate and focus on the writing of this book which has been therapy actually it's it's really been uh, an incredible journey for me i know myself much better now than i did when i started writing the book and i would encourage every listener out there to just think about putting your pen to paper whether or not anyone ever sees it sometimes it's amazing when you get still and lock yourself into the present moment and then just start writing you just don't know what's going to come out. And often it helps you understand yourself better what comes out. You know, that is a great suggestion. And it also, you know, if you have children, um, it can yeah. be really interesting for them to get to know oh, you yeah. on a different level, even if you wait until after you're gone to share it with them. Um, That's right. My mother, who, of course, is often on this show with us, um, has kept a journal most of her life and I haven't read much of it, but I, she had shared a little bit of something from when I was 
the summer I was 13 with me recently, and I really got a different perspective on my mom. From wow, that's, yeah, it is, it is very different when you can read someone's inner thoughts like that. Yes. And, you know, I did an interview with my grandmother when she was, probably 93 and she was pretty blind by then but she had a lot of great stories and we were talking on the phone one day and I said Gran you've got to write this story down it's incredible and and she said it kills me that my stories are going to die with me so I went to Ottawa which is the capital of Canada and she was living there at the time and I interviewed her over the course of two or three days and it was such a gift to both of us because for me, I was keeping those stories and also her energy, you know, captured on video, telling stories that she was really engaged in. And so it was a gift to the whole family, but it was also a gift to her because she, like I watched her sort of get lighter as the time went on because she kind of felt this sense that she was leaving a more full legacy behind and that's, that has become something I do professionally now on occasion. I don't do a lot of it, but it's something I enjoy because it's doing that kind of a legacy interview is, a, as I say, a gift to the whole family. And, oh. and you have, you know, not just the memories, but the, the essence of someone in their storytelling. And, you, you know, you talk about storytelling all the time. Oh, I loved your last episode with your guest last week. It was it was so engaging. Oh, do you remember which one that was? Wendy. I think oh, that was the yes. last one. Wendy Willis Baldwin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, who talked about her sister's journey yes. and, and their journey together. You know, storytelling is the oldest form of human communication. And whether you are talking about personal communication or professional, storytelling is sometimes the most underutilized form of connecting with others I think and it's really the best way oh it? it's, it's so <laughs> juicy it's yeah. so juicy is there anything better than getting into a book that you just can't put down oh absolutely I love not. it now I gotta I gotta tell you about you talked about your grandma so I'm a grandma yeah. I have a, a 10 year old and granddaughter 13 year old grandson and I'm oh, wow. very fortunate to be able to spend quite a bit of time with them and um, last night I was teasing the 10-year-old. Well, I wasn't really teasing, but she was teasing. I said she should come to grandma camp this summer. And oh. she's like, well, that is not a thing. I go, yes, it is. It is definitely a thing. It is not. Let me Google it. And she Googled it, and it is really a thing. Oh, There's I grandma camp t-shirts. There's books about how to host a grandma camp. So then oh my I, was, gosh. I you... was telling her all the things we were going to do at grandma camp. And she's, and then she said, are you going to talk about this on your interview? Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> the funny synchronicity is that I have for years run something that I call Nancy camp, ah! which is, which is my, my kids, friends will come or my nieces and nephews, and they'll come for a week at our cottage, and it's like full on. We just have fun, and I really check out of work completely. So they boogie, bo boogie board for hours, which is how I discovered how much I love audiobooks, by the way, so that I could keep my eye on them but still be entertained. But, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, I love hearing them now okay. that they're getting I older. Think, I talk think I want to come Nancy to Nancy Camp. Camp. It you sounds are like a blast. <laughs> you know what, Monica? Bring your mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's tons of fun. And it, it is very much connected to something I talk about in this book, especially at the back. I have a section called Doorways to Presence, ways of really getting into the present moment. Because I have a busy mind, and I, I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was about 50, but looking back, it all makes sense to me now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really important for me, and it's been transformative for me to learn that when I'm nervous about something, when I'm anxious about an interaction or an appearance, if I really take myself out of the worry, which is being in the future, or the rumination about what might have gone wrong in the past, and really get in the present moment, then I'm just breathing and I'm okay. 
and I can focus on my contribution. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that being present and playing is a big thing for me these days. So, Grandma Camp, <laughs> you, I'm sure, are just going to, you know, you just get to be in the moment with those kids and play. And I think that's a, the greatest thing we can teach our children and, and coach them to stay in that sense of play because that's so otherwise a, yeah. we, we get away from it as yeah. adults. And I actually didn't have a lot of play as a child either. In some sense, I was, you know, the second of five kids, the oldest girl. My mother taught music lessons after school, so I took care of the younger children um, after school. I, and, I, and I was always a very serious child. And I didn't really become playful till in my 30s, I'd say. I finally kind of learned how to play. And now, yeah. and then I, you know, was I was the one who with my nieces and nephews, certainly my own kids, but also my nieces and nephews who were all younger than my children, was the one who was rolling on the floor with them and, and you know, playing while all the other adults were sitting around talking, playing cards. I was on the floor playing with the kids. and um, yeah. And I still have you know, wonderful relationships with all of them as a result of that. That's where connection is, right? It's that, found absolutely. in that authentic yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Re revelation of yourself in the moment. And and I, I can't help but think when you say that, the words that came to my mind were, that's where joy lives. Joy only lives in the present moment. Joy yes. doesn't, you know, you can anticipate joy or you can remember joy, but you feel joy only when you're really present in the moment. And that's a good reason to have a presence practice right there. Absolutely. So, Nancy, tell us how you came to write from showing off to showing up. Sure. I I pitched a, well, not a completely different book, but a somewhat different book. I pitched to a publisher here in Canada a book about the fear of public speaking because that's uh, one of the things I do professionally is coach people. And my coaching is kind of subversively soulful because I really want to help people reconnect to their inner light. I, I have this theory that when we're kids and we are in the moment and we're playful, we feel our own light so fully. Like if you look at toddlers, you know, every, oh. every one of us has seen toddlers in public twirling around and, and being their, their full self without worrying about anyone else's judgment or expectation. And we really get away from that because the world turns down our, our light just by saying, okay, don't be quite so big, don't be so loud. And we hear, behave, be good, you know, yes. be be something, but very rarely are we just told be, be everything you are. And so then we get to be teenagers and we turn down our dimmer light even more because we don't want anyone to notice us. And if you're a slow learner like me, it might take you decades before you go, oh, I have this inner light that I've forgotten all about and I need to reconnect with. And you know, the world puts that light out in so many different ways, and, and some of them much harsher than others. Trauma, trauma when we're children, can, can shut down our ability to feel joy and, and to feel safe just being really present. So I, I started with this book about the fear of public speaking. And um, although that's what the publisher said yes to, when they started reading my stories – that were going to be included in the book, they realized that there was a different book here. And they convinced me, although it was difficult at first because I was really an imposter syndrome about this, they wanted me to write a memoir instead. And most authors, I'm sure you've heard this many times on your program, but a lot of author, authors go through the who am I to write a book, but especially who am I to write a memoir? You know, you, you <laughs> yeah, think about the yes, word. Exactly. It's me, me memoir. It's all about me. Um, but what I have discovered by, by following through with what they wanted is that not only did it take me on a journey to figure out what it was that I didn't like about myself, and here, here, let me explain what I mean by this. I think that if you have the fear of public speaking, if you really dig beneath it, 
it's the fear of public being and being seen by others. And if we keep digging way down, it's really the fear of being seen as inadequate. And beneath that is that self-limiting belief that so many of us have that I am not enough. And we try to hide it from the world by wearing our social mask that says, oh yeah, you know, as I say, I've got it all together, even if I'm close to feeling like I'm falling apart. And for me, this book became an exploration of why didn't I want to show up in the world? As far as I'm concerned, showing off is living our life according to those expectations of everybody else and, and looking for gold stars and praise and the good opinion of others, where showing up is, here I am. This is the real me. You know, not a people pleaser, not someone who's always trying to look for the good opinion of others, but just this is the real me, take me or leave me. And that is an incredibly liberating way to live. And it's also, I think, in my experience, certainly, it has been where the joy lives, because then we can relax about worrying what other people's opinions of our, us are. And really, instead of showing off, we show up. So I've, it, it, for me, it's the same thing whether I'm talking about someone being comfortable on stage. If you are standing in the wings before you go on stage and you're thinking about your performance, you're thinking about how people are going to see you and judge you. And that triggers us to be very nervous. It triggers our fight or flight system. So, you know, it's like a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you. Your brain doesn't know the difference. However, if you're focused on being present, I always say to people, I don't want you to present. I want you to present. I want ah. you to go up there and really be <laughs> present. And then you can focus on your contribution. What are you there to give or to share? And all of a sudden that doesn't that puts you in a hero rather than victim mode. You know, you're you're there to say, Yeah, I've got something to share with these people. And I believe the exact same thing is true in a broader sense in our lives. That when we can stop worrying about the comparison and judgment in our world, which is so toxic, and we can really get comfortable with ourselves and say, Yeah, I have I have strengths and I have weaknesses. I am a paradox, just like everyone else in the world, and accept myself for who I am, then I can take off that social mask and find really rewarding connection with other people. It's the, you know, it's the work of Brene Brown, who's really taught the world about the need for us to have that fundamental feeling of connection, but we go about it the wrong way. We try to show everybody you know, how, we've, how we've, we're on top of the world and we want to make connection that way, we're really the only way to make authentic connection is to reveal our authentic selves. And in order to do that, you got to find a way, in my view, to be comfortable with your authentic self and to say, yeah, I'm enough. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, I never had a problem with public speaking, but singing, I had a I get so nervous that I couldn't really sing in public very well. I mean, I've done it and I've done okay, but I just get so nervous about singing. That's funny. Do you love to sing? I used to. I don't do it so much anymore, but I I was a singer-songwriter and I did do some performing, but I just was always very, very nervous about it. And I think part of it was, you know, my mother was did a lot of public singing. She um, played guitar and sang all, you know, in our local communities, all kinds of different events and, you know, church choir. And she was um, very confident in her singing. And I, maybe I just never felt like I was as good as she was. And it's intimidating. Yeah. It's intimidating. Yeah. Whereas public speaking, I didn't have a problem with. Uh, That's interesting. But I, I think when you consider singing in front of others, there is a real vulnerability about that. There's something kind of intimate about showing them, you know, uh, inside you. It, it's really, there's an emotional connection that has to happen there for you to sing. And 
I, I'm chuckling because I love to sing. Like if I'm driving by myself in the car, and actually sometimes when I'm driving with my teenage daughter <laughs> and some of her friends, much to her chagrin, I sing along. But I, I really enjoy singing. But I've had that same kind of uh, intimidation or, or fear of singing in front of others because I'm worried that I can't stay in the right key. Exactly. I that I get flat. Or, yeah. I think people, but, I feel like people judge singing a lot. They judge. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what, that's what I mean. Like the two, in my, in my view, two of the most destructive forces in the world are comparison and judgment. And you talk about and, those a lot in your book. And in fact, you yeah. refer to them as C and J. And the first time I C saw that, J? I'm like, C and J, what was that? And I had to go back and look it up. Yeah. But yeah, comparison and judgment. Yeah. And, and, you know, we live in a social media world, which has just, that's gotten out of control. Everybody is oh. like, love, how many, how many people do I have approving of me today? And that's exhausting. Yeah. Whereas, you know, real human connection feeds you. It, it doesn't deplete you. It fills you up. And that's, uh, that's something that I've really come to learn in my life. And, and I do believe that when you consider how much we worry about what other people think it's really at the very base it's what will the neighbors think and mm. we might have all heard that as kids like oh well, what will the neighbors think the old you know those old generations really cared so deeply and and it was important to them to have a good reputation and your children were uh, just a uh, an extension of you, little ambassadors for you running around in the world. And so they had to behave and and really be exemplary. And I, I think that right now, so many of us, when it comes down to it, one of our greatest issues is worrying about what the, what will the neighbors think. And of course, in your family, it was even more so because... Yes, I grew up in a political family. And, and, you know, really, when you think about it, if you go into politics, everybody's your neighbor. It matters what everybody thinks. And, and I learned that you had to be approved, you, you had to be approved of in order to keep, keep your, your job. job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was a, that was a, a start for me in being a people pleaser and feeling like I really had to win fans. And I guess the way I say it now, I had this moment when I was walking in nature and those are so often when I have um, these little moments of uh, epiphany or I call them a bolt of enlightening. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. And I thought, oh, I used to be so concerned about being loved and now I really just want to be love. I want to show up as love in the world and be love in action and, and contribute and, and, you know, give rather than worry about how I'm being seen. And that's what I've heard from readers has just talk about filling me up. It's been such a, an emotional experience having so many people from different demographics, like recently an 82-year-old man and a 26-year-old young woman sent me the same message in emails, which was basically, <laughs> you're making me feel not alone. Like I've felt like this my whole life. And I thought I was the only one that felt like this. And wow. that has been such a reward for me for being willing to be as vulnerable as, I, as I've been in the book. Because as much anxiety as I had when it went to the printer, after it came out, I just have been over and over um, rewarded is the best word I can use by hundreds of messages from people saying, thank you, because you're helping me look at my life differently. And what it's taught me is, Monica, we're all just experiencing the human condition. You know, 99% of us are feeling that, that worry that we're not enough mm -hmm. and that we need to be more. And that we're falling short. And it's such a waste of our lives to stay trapped in that. And I just, if I could accomplish one thing with this book, it is about that contribution to unlock for other people what was unlocked for me. Like, oh, wow, this is 
a huge transformation in my life to live liberated from that worry about what will the neighbors think. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Nancy Regan, author of From Showing Off to Showing Up, An Imposter's Journey from Perfect to Present. For anyone who might not be familiar with the term, what is imposter syndrome? It's actually, it's an interesting, uh, controversial term right now, because there are, there are some voices out there that say, oh, no, you know, stop telling women that uh, they're imposters. And there was a, a really prominent article in the New York Times about that. And, and it makes a lot of very valid points. However, there is this idea for so many of us that we are imposters in some way in our life, frauds, and, and that we've got everybody fooled. And I experienced this even as a teenager when I realized that other people thought I was better than I really felt I was. And I was approached by the, the vice principal of my high school and some friends to say, why don't you run for student council president? And I, I remember so clearly thinking, no way, because if I do that, if I put myself into the arena like that, people people will figure out that I'm not as smart or as you know talented or as skilled as they think I am. And so, no, I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to be vulnerable like that. And now, of course, I'm I'm really very willing to be vulnerable and show myself because I don't feel like a fraud. I feel like. I am a complex human being, just like everyone listening, and we all have our parts that we're proud of, and we all have our shadow, as Carl Jung put it, you know, that part of ourself that we disown. I remember reading about Carl Jung in in psychology in the beginning of university, and hearing that often things that drive us crazy about other people are things that we don't want to admit about ourselves. They're mm-hmm. parts of our shadow that we have disowned. And I was like, no, I don't I don't accept that. I don't I don't really <laughs> think that's and now I'm like, yep, check, check, uh, check. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. yet you were having a lot of visible success. Yes. I I as I say, I I became the co host of Live at Five at the age of 22, had 350,000 viewers on this daily news magazine. And I ended up doing a lot of very high-profile interviews, as you said in your, in your intro, and having conversations with some of the most famous people in the world. And yet I did it all acting. Mm. <laughs> I, I was really uh, an excellent faker. I was, I discovered acting at a young age and I could act like the most confident person in the world. And that's been one of the fun things about this book because even people who, who knew me as a friend or in some cases a relative back then in my early days of TV will now say to me, I had no idea that you were struggling with insecurity because you seemed like one of the most confident people I knew because I had that social mask and it was polished. And I, it was transparent as well in that they, my viewers saw the real me to some extent, but only the parts that I wanted to let them see. And I was terrified of making mistakes because of that same fear that I held in high school that, oh, I'm not really as good as people think I am. I lucked into this job. And Mm. and do you know, so many women, I would say, this goes to the imposter theory, a frightening number of women that I know who are so competent and skilled and talented and smart – will say, oh, they really got lucky in their careers. You know, they might hold very high positions, but they'll always, oh, no, I, I really got lucky. They downplay their achievement. And that's part of that feeling of, I'm not as good as everybody makes me out to be. I'm not all that in a bag of chips. And I think that when we get to a point where we really accept all parts of ourselves, then we can befriend ourselves and and say, 
yeah, you know what? I'm I'm great at this, and I'm terrible at that. <laughs> I will tell you, my ADHD means that I'm I'm a disorganized, uh, you know, person with a messy desk, and I judged myself so harshly for that for so long. The same reason that I didn't want anyone to see me make a mistake on TV. Mm. I didn't want them to judge me as not being enough. That's what it comes down to. And the day I realized, huh, if I make a mistake on the air and ignore this little critter that was constantly in my ear saying, oh, you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. If I make a mistake on the air and can be comfortable with it, not only does it, it not make people judge me harshly, it endears me to them. Oh, of and course. And I realized when I got comfortable making mistakes on the air and could laugh at myself, all of a sudden people could relate to me in a, in a more profound way. And, and they felt like they knew me more. And that's exactly what I'm saying about in our general lives, the more we can just relax our, our guard, take off our armor and set it down and really show up with people that's when we are just rewarded so richly with a, a profound sense of connection to friends, to family members, and, and to your grandkids even, you know? If you <laughs> yeah. let them see that you're not perfect, oh, that's yes. the biggest gift. Yes, yes, and they, they are very well aware of that. And in fact, that um, <laughs> the, in your book, you talk about you know, the, issue, the syndrome of the perfect child and um, I have been, my my granddaughter was, uh, apparently my son had told her he was a perfect child and he was joking. And so she would come and say, so was my dad really a perfect child? And so I would tell all the stories about the ways he got in trouble when he was a kid. And I was, and I also shared the stories of when I got things I did when I was a kid that were imperfect. And they really get a kick out of that, I think. Oh, I think it's it's really uh, along the same lines as apologizing to our children. <laughs> I think that is one of the most powerful things you can possibly do, like to allow them to see you as an imperfect yet proud person. You're proud of yourself even though you're imperfect. Yeah. And you like yeah. yourself. Like that, if you can be that kind of a role model as a mother or grandmother or aunt or a friend. I think that you you give others a great gift. And and for me, when I learned to say I'm sorry to my kids, to say you know what I'm I got I flew off the handle or I got annoyed with you about that, and that was my stuff. That wasn't your stuff. That's not your fault. That was all about me. That says to them, oh, it's o it's okay to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable is not the weakness that so much of our society makes it out to be. It's actually uh, not only a strength, but I think it's a superpower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfectionism was an issue for you. It was also my issue as as a younger person and still something I have to deal with today. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, it is a practice, getting over it. <laughs> you know, the, in, originally my, my um, the title that I was working with was Practicing Presence. And there is a big dose of that in the book because that's, you know, that's the end section in the book is doorways to presence. And my own ways, as I say, of really driving myself into the present moment and staying there and, and remembering to, to savor my life instead of miss it. Because if we're not present, we're absent. And I, I, I say, do you want to be absent for your life? Absolutely not. And when we're focusing on being perfect, we are missing the juicy stuff in life because we are really focusing on the wrong thing. We're focusing on performance rather than contribution. So I would love to ask you a question. What, if anything, about the book connected with you regarding perfectionism well the, what we were just talking about the concept of the perfect child because i tried so hard as a kid to be the perfect child now i will say one of the reasons that i feel like i haven't had to ever deal with imposter syndrome or something like that is that my mother as far as i can recall has never criticized me 
I don't recall ever being wow. criticized by my mom. My father really? was a lot harder, but yeah. But that, um, I think, made a huge difference in my life. Yeah, it really, and, and you know that and can pass it on to your grandchildren. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, that it, it, you're not undermining. I, I heard something in a retreat years ago that was like a bolt of enlightening for sure. Uh, someone said, those voices in your head, those negative voices in your head that most of us have, really, I think most of us except for the narcissists, have that voice in our head that's saying, oh, you're not enough, or you did this wrong, or you did that wrong, and why can't you ever, dot, dot, dot. Um, I think that that's something that we have heard from someone else. So everything that is part of the negative dialogue in your head, if you look at it and say, who said that to me? Who, and for me, I tell the story about a, a, a teacher in my elementary years who looked at me and said in front of the whole class, I remember her, I can picture her standing over my desk and said, Nancy Regan, you are the most disorganized child I have ever seen in my life. And I had an interesting reaction to that that day because I, I uncharacteristically stood up out of my desk and just walked to the door of the classroom without saying anything, grabbed my little jacket off the hook outside the door of the classroom, walked out the front door of the school, and ran like heck all the way home. Because there was some inner knowing in me that said, no, this is not okay to humiliate me like this. But although I took an empowered position that day. And I even felt empowered when I came back to the school. When, of course, my mom made me go back after lunch. And the principal sat me down and she was a very nurturing person. And I just always remember her saying, Nancy, dear, I think you let your temper get the best of you. And for years, I thought she had been telling me that I did the right thing because I didn't understand that expression, the best of you. I was like, okay, thank you very much. And she said, you'll have to apologize. So I was like, okay, I'll apologize. I've got the principal on my side. And so I, I, I found that the other kids were like, wow, you're so brave. And I know that that teacher, in my experience, never talked to anyone like that again. Mm-hmm. However... Her words really scarred me that day. And it wasn't until decades later that I realized, oh, my gosh, that's the voice in my head that says you're bad because you're not organized. You're bad because you're messy. And that was part of this journey to self-acceptance to sort of realize that, recognize it fully, and then let go of it. And figure out a way to say, yeah, uh, that's true, but I'm still imperfectly perfect. We're all imperfectly perfect. And the moment we can relax into that, that's when life gets fun Mm -hmm. instead of fearful. (laughs) Nancy, would you like to read a little bit from your book, From Showing Off to Showing Up? Oh, that's funny. We're really in sync, I'm telling you, because I just said fearful, and the the part that you, you had to let me know ahead of time, you might like me to read something, and the the little section that I wanted to read is about fear and our relationship to it Perfect. as adults, and sometimes as kids as well. So, yeah, I'll, I'll read this little excerpt if you like. Please. Remember how much fun it was as a kid to climb up on a swing and get a push? The rush of air through your hair, the exhilaration of the perfect dose of fear to awaken all your senses. As we got comfortable, our parents would push us a little harder, allowing us to feel a fuller spectrum of that swinging sensation. It set us free, and for most of us, it was our first experience of flight. Eventually, we graduated to the underduck. You know when the pusher would run with and then under the swing, unleashing pure glee for the swinger? But, of course, adventure and risk are fast friends, and injury could ensue from this otherwise delightful endeavor. If you weren't holding on tightly, you could fall off. Cuts, scrapes, and bruises would probably be the worst of it, but part of the escapade was defying the fear and embracing the fun. 
isn't this how we should all live our lives? Open to adventure, embracing a healthy dose of fear? But we tend to grow out of this. I know I did. As a kid, I loved the zipper, at the time the most daring ride at the fair. After navigating a long lineup, we eagerly climbed into this oval cage, got strapped in, and the door was latched. Then the large wheel on which the cages were mounted started to turn, but our compartment turned too, for it was attached only by an axle. The next few minutes were a thrilling blur of fear and fun. When the ride was over, we stumbled off, happy to be on terra firma once again, but also laughing our heads off, adrenaline still surging through us. In my experience, growing up teaches us that fear is to be avoided at all costs, that what we need above all else is control. Fast forward to motherhood. When my boys were six and eight years old, I found myself on a Ferris wheel with them. Pretty tame, right? Not so, as it turned out. As you likely know, the nature of this ride is that before and after the wheel turns unimpeded, it must methodically stop and start, allowing the exit and entrance of passengers. These little stops are part of the fun. You're left hanging, waiting for the motion to resume. But that day, some kind of problem stopped the wheel for 10 eternal minutes while we were at the very top of the rotation. It was windy, and we were rocking. And while my kids were exhilarated, I was experiencing something very different. Here I was with my two sweet boys, and my primary life's work as their mother was to protect them. It may have been only the Ferris wheel, but with every gust of wind, I felt the tumultuous terror of the zipper, only without the fun. It wasn't rational, it was pure instinct, and every cell in my body was revolting against this lack of control. Rock-a-bye baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Down will come baby, cradle and all. What if the bow breaks? What if our seat gets loosened by the wind? What if the maintenance has been shoddy? What if one of my active boys squirms away from me and falls? What if we all fall? What if we die? Oh. <laughs> this torturous spiral of thoughts is exactly the kind of mental tornado that happens for so many of us when we are stepping into the spotlight, feeling like we might die. What if the bow breaks? What if I screw up? What if I forget my material? What if they don't like me? What if they think I'm stupid? What if they know I'm stupid? <laughs> My job in this book is to strengthen not only your bow, but your whole damn tree, helping you grow roots that will allow you to bend in the wind without breaking. And that's not just about being on stage, but being on the stage of life and being in every interaction so that we can show up as our true selves and relax and enjoy it rather than worrying about showing off and courting people's favor. That, was, that last part wasn't reading. <laughs> right, was right. <laughs> well, thank you, Nancy, for sharing with us from showing off to showing up. Um, I shared with you before we started recording that uh, I my grand, I took my grandson, went with him on the Velociraptor at Universal Studios. For two days, I managed to avoid any really scary rides. But on the last <laughs> night, he really wanted to go on it again, and no one else would go with him. And so I said, okay, I'll go with you. And we're standing in line. I said, I'm looking around. I said, you know, I may be the only grandmother in this line. And he goes, well, you're oh, not going to pass out, are you? <laughs> You're you're not grandma, you're glamour. <laughs> and you know, this is one of the rides where you can't even wear your glasses on it. You have to take off and, your glasses, and were you able your to cell relax? phone. Oh, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? I couldn't even open my eyes. <laughs> I tried. I tried to open them a couple of times, like, nope, I'm shutting them again. And and they have that the photo that they take while you're on these rides. And I didn't have time to stop and buy it. I wish I had, but I saw it up on the screen. And so here I am 
clutching the bar with my eyes cl closed and my face all screwed up. And there's my grandson with a big smile on his face and his hands up in the air. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh, Monica, <laughs> that is that is the illustration of exactly what I'm talking about. You know, if we can get back to who we were before the world told us to be afraid yeah. and to really be our true selves, <laughs> if we can, and that's when we enjoy the fun. We go from the fear to the fun. Yeah, and, although I'm not sure can, that riding a really scary no. roller coaster is necessary as part of oh. that journey. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I am not. I am not recommending it. And I, I have to give you kudos because I, the last time I was at Universal Studios in Florida with my boys, they were older. My daughter was too young, but they wanted to go on those rides, and I had to let someone else do it with them. I just mm, couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so way to go, Glamma. Yeah, and I would do it again. But I hope I don't yeah. have to. <laughs> well, they'll remember that for the rest of their lives. You know, you think about that. They and and that's what do you want them to remember? Do you want them to remember having that pure sense of glee and fun mm -hmm. with you? They didn't know how scared you were probably in the moment. Or do you want them to think of you as being, oh, she was standing on the sidelines of right, life, and, right. and oh, I was taking yeah. part, and she was just scared. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to teach my kids to be scared anymore. I, I gave them a bad example of being a perfectionist and and feeling like I needed to be in control when they were little, and I'm really trying to undo that. I think as we as we age as parents, we realize we have to undo any of the the negative things any we. The we taught we our kids because which you know what yeah, we're all learning all every time. single parent screws up their kids you can't right. avoid it so don't beat yourself and it's up part about of it. our learning in life don't yeah. you think it yeah. is it, it i look back at some of the challenging things in my childhood and i and i really can see how they helped me be a strong human being. Oh, absolutely. So we never we never make it through this life without some kind of suffering and discomfort and if we can learn from it and grow from it then that's I think that's what we're here to do. <laughs> and like my mother likes to say none of us get out alive. <laughs> that none of us are getting out of this alive. That's that's so right. I have a friend who who died of cancer 4 years ago and I write about her in the book. And I have never seen anyone embrace dying like mm. she did. And, and that was one of the things she joked about, like, why do we have so much stigma around dying if, if we're all going to do it? And yet we pretend that we're not. Yeah. And she wanted people to change their attitudes. And she would say, I really believe that our last breath should be celebrated and honored in the first way our first uh, in the same way our first breath is. And I, I think that's such an enduring legacy. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And she also said, be kind because you can. I love that. I love that. I try and live by that. And also, yeah. the ability to be kind is a blessing. It's like, if you can be kind, that makes you the lucky one. Oh, it makes life so much richer. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. so many people are going through life thinking, oh, if I could be rich, then I would be happy. And you can look at a lot of unhappy rich people in the world. In fact, I, I think that money brings a whole other set of, of problems and suffering for people. But what we really should should hope for and and seek is to be enriched to mm. live lives that are enriched and that is as you say that's about being kind and 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 showing up as love in action as as Richard Rohr would say the Franciscan friar who who is teaching the world so much about not religion but how to just you know live together and accept ourselves and each other and and to be love in action he he has a center called the center for action and contemplation and he he says the most important word in that title is the and that we you know we don't just sit on a meditation cushion for our lives and say om and think <laughs> that we're that we're doing the right thing it's really about taking that sense of presence and showing up and 
doing something with it to make the world a little better, even if it's just making a difference in one person's life and and smiling at someone on the street who looks, you know, like they're not getting their fill of, of human connection for the day. You know, Nancy, in your book, From Showing Off to Showing Up, um, you do share a lot of personal stories, but you also share a lot of things you've learned from various teachers, some of them very well known, some of them I haven't heard of. Do you want to talk about some of the people that you are sharing their wisdom with in this book with us? Yeah, I I love that part of it, actually. And And sometimes I'm tempted. When I was writing the book, I kept thinking, I want people to know that I'm a I'm not trying to come across as a teacher. I'm a seeker. And the most beautiful review I've read about my book brought me to tears because this woman who I I don't know, in fact, I don't even know where she lives, but she wrote on uh, Amazon, she wrote a, a review that said, reading this book is like walking arm in arm with Nancy as she takes you through this beautiful garden of ideas to show you things she's excited about. And I, that took my breath away. It makes me emotional still because that's what I wanted. I wanted to say, you know, there are all these people who are shining so brightly in the world and who have so so much good to offer. I just want to amplify their voices. And I've learned so much from them and and they have contributed to my sense of of enjoyment now of life and and liberation. And I mean people like Brene Brown who I talked about. I, I first read her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. Before she became an internet superstar with her TED Talk, she has, she has one on vulnerability and one on shame, and she's a shame researcher. And I remember thinking, oh, vulnerability, yeah, I can, I can get into this. This is great. And then she started talking about shame, and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> I didn't want to think about what I held shame about. That's a, that's a you know, very tough word. It's how we create our own suffering, worrying about the shame that we hold within. And, and so she, through, through her writing, I think has taught me an enormous amount. Now, in person, working with Wayne Dyer was a, a really transformative moment in my life because I talk about that dimmer light. And the, the moment that I saw this vision of a dimmer switch and and the idea that I had turned down my own dimmer light and I needed to turn it back up again to feel my own light. It was when I was working on a tour with Wayne Dyer in Eastern Canada. And uh, for those of you who don't know, he was, I think he was the most successful self-help author on the planet. And he died in 2015. And just three months before his death, I had the opportunity to go on this tour with him and introduce him and my friend, Andrew Beirubay, who was also the, his producer. And after that, after that experience, Anne and I flew to Hawaii and had the incredible opportunity to spend time with Wayne there. We had two dinners with him. And he was an extraordinary human being. You know, sometimes you you see these people that so many uh, in their audience look to you as a guru and you think, are they are they the real deal or are they the Wizard of Oz? And Wayne's tour that I worked on was called I Am Light. And it was the sort of the conclusion of all this work that he had done through his life exploring the self and his final book was called I can see clearly now and his tour was I am light and he talked about the idea that you know the expression namaste in in yoga communities means the light in me honors sees and honors the light in you and he talked about this idea that we are all filled with divine light it's just that we forget that our, our lives are about, our, our earth adventure is all about forgetting that we are actually spiritual beings having physical experiences, as he put it, rather than the opposite. And he, just watching him hold the audience in the palm of his hand on stage every night, I 
was so taken by his sense of presence and his joy and his authenticity and how he could just so comfortably be in conversation with the audience, not worrying about not having any notes and not worrying about what he was going to say next and being right. In fact, he, he, he said something that was so important. He said, you know, I believe that we need to stop focusing on being right and really focus on being with each other mm. and being ourselves. And that's what this book is really all about. Well, Nancy, we're just about out of time, but I did want to mention you also write about your experience being on the Oprah show, but interviewing Oprah on her own show. And you write about um, somewhat about meditation. And I just wanted to share that Oprah came to my little hometown of Fairfield, Iowa, and because it's the center of transcendental meditation, and she was practicing that. And I actually did get to meditate with Oprah in our group meditation hall. Wow. She she was definitely a highlight for me. And I learned from her that expression from those to whom much is given, much is expected. Mm. And those words, when she said them, I, I was only I wasn't on her show. I was only in the audience um, okay. for her show and really enjoyed that. I watched two two tapings back to back. And then the next day I came back in and was going to do the interview and discovered that I was interviewing her on her set, okay. which really blew okay. my mind. <laughs> but but she when she said that, it, it really that's the underpinning of my belief that we are here to contribute from those of us to whom much is given, much is expected. And we're all given so much. If we can be great, grateful in our lives, whether it's just our health that we have or a roof over our heads, if we can be grateful, I always believe that we can't feel stressed and grateful at the same time. So for me, that's a practice of presence right there. I go to my gratitude practice. When I slip out of my comfort zone and start to feel anxiety or worry about what other people will think, I go to that practice presence and say, no, I'm just, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to focus on my contribution instead of my performance. Well, Nancy, thank you for contributing to my show today. I really appreciate it. We always end with a quote, and the one from Oprah would be perfect, but I also had another one from your book that I loved by Theodore Roosevelt, Comparison is the Thief of Joy. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe that so strongly, And and I believe that the work you're doing is shining a light. And I just want to say thank you for for supporting writers. You know, writers don't write books to make money, <laughs> right? And, and it's and I think if you if you set out with that intention, it's not going to land with anyone. What I've discovered is that as a writer, the more intimately you can allow yourself to be seen, and the more specific you are to your own story the more it lands with the people who read it. And that has been such an amazing, magical learning for me. And it's, it's connected me to my readers in such a beautiful way. So if people do reach out and get this book, I, I really want to say I would love for you to reach out to me either through social media or through my website, nancyregan.ca, and Talk to me about what your reaction was to the book or how it landed for you because I I, I like to say that the reason I'm wearing Converse sneakers on the cover is twofold. It's because it's about me getting back to who I was before the world told me who and how to be and encouraging everybody to do that. But it's also about, are you ready for this very corny joke? Sure. It's about (laughs) starting a Converse <laughs> in my own oh, mind, I love puns. Right? I love puns. It's the intention. It's like I wanted them on the cover because my intention was to connect with other human beings and to make us all feel like, you know what? We're all going through this adventure together. So many of us are feeling those insecurities and doubts. And if we could all just say, hey, we're in this together, let's 
let's have fun and be in the joy. Oh. And as I say to my, my kids when they leave the house or when I finish a conversation with them, I like to say, have fun, stay safe, be love. And I, I just want to say that to the wonderful people listening and, and express my really deep gratitude for you having me on the show and, and helping me shine my light and also just helping so many writers. It's a beautiful way to contribute to the world. Oh, thank you so much. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.